good to be here tonight, and it's good to see you here. As Brother Monty announced, we're going to be studying from Acts chapter 23 tonight, uh, and we're going to stay pretty true to the chapter. We're not going to do a whole lot of jumping around. We're going to do a little bit at the start, uh, and we're also going to uh, do a little bit of a recap. And you might think of this as sometimes you watch a TV show and they say last time on, well, that's what we're going to kind of do, because... We're kind of jumping into the middle of a situation rather than the beginning of one. Uh, we're not going to take time to go back and read through this. I just want to review a few things because it's been a little bit since we've been in chapter 21. Uh, so just going back, Paul has been through his missionary journeys. He's traveled thousands of miles. He has gone out. He has put his life in peril to preach the gospel of Jesus and to convert numerous Gentiles all over the place as well as Jews and Paul finally gets back to his hometown of Jerusalem. Now uh, when I say hometown Paul was born in Tarsus of Cilicia but Paul grew up in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel. This is his hometown. It's what he's wanted to come back to and long to come back to even though he knows there's danger there and when he gets there he goes and he meets with James the brother of Jesus who is a pillar in the church there and an elder in the church there and he is warned by James, he says, you know, a lot of the Jews that have believed, they've been hearing these things about you, and I'm paraphrasing obviously, but they've been hearing these things about you that, that you're teaching contrary to the law, and you're telling people not to circumcise their kids, and, and, and I'm just letting you know this is what people are hearing, so you need to do something uh, to, to, to make a show of good faith. You need to take a vow, and you need to pay the expenses of the other men that are going to take this vow so you can show these people that you're not trying to teach, tell people not to keep the law. Now, now, if you think about Paul and what he had done and even what happened between him and Peter at Antioch, Paul was not keeping the law to its entirety. Paul was eating with the Gentiles. He had abandoned some of the ceremonial things regarding to the law. He was still keeping some of the law, but the, the reason he does this is not because he's required to, but think of it like Timothy being circumcised. Timothy didn't have to be circumcised to be right with God, but he did this to try to keep peace and, and help the ministry and all those things. So I think that's why Paul did what he did in taking this vow. But it didn't really matter because when he gets to the temple, uh, he goes in after he's purified himself, he walks into the temple, and these Jews from Asia, they see Paul and they go, there's that guy. There's that troublemaker. There's that guy that had been telling people, has been speaking against the people, against the law, against this place. And then they even accuse him of bringing Trophimus, the Ephesian, into the temple to bring a Greek into the temple, which was not lawful to do. However, they didn't see him bring Trophimus into the temple because he didn't bring Trophimus into the temple. They just assumed that because they saw Paul, Paul walking around town with Trophimus because he was his brother. But he didn't bring him to the temple, but that's what they accused him. Now, the reason we're going through this is because that accusation right there is going to be the beginning of all of Paul's troubles all the way to the end until he eventually meets with Caesar. And that's not recorded for us in Scripture, the, the meeting with Caesar. But he appeals to Caesar, and it all goes back to this accusation that was made right here in the temple when they accused him of bringing a Jew into the temple, or a Jew, a Greek, into the temple. So they take Paul and they seize him and they beat him, the Jews did. And while he's being beaten, the commander of the army runs in and they take Paul and then they arrest Paul. And after they arrest Paul, they take him to the barracks. And Paul speaks to the Jews 
And he explains to them why he's done the things that he's done and tells them his conversion story. Well, that just makes them angry again. And so now they're angry again, and they want to kill Paul, and they want to take Paul. And Paul is seized, and he's almost interrogated by scourging. And so when you go back to chapter 22 and you read where it says that they're going to examine Paul by scourging, essentially that's a torturous uh, interrogation tactic that the Romans use. So they're going to beat Paul and they're going to get to the bottom of this and find out why these people keep making accusations against him. And Paul says, hey, is it lawful for you to be a Roman citizen? And he says, oh, you're a Roman citizen. And he says, I paid a large amount of money to become a Roman citizen. And Paul says, well, I was born free. And so they, they take Paul and they say, okay, we're not going to beat him. He's a Roman citizen. However, the commander of the army is not satisfied with not knowing what Paul's been accused of. And so he's still going to get to the bottom of this, and that's where we end chapter 22 before we get to chapter 23. It ends this way. It says, The next day, because he wanted to know, that's the commander, wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So he's not going to beat Paul, beat it out of him, you might say, beat him for information, but he decides, I'm still going to get to the bottom of this. And so he, he sets Paul free and, and, uh, from his bonds. And then he takes Paul, still under his care, he takes him to the council. Now my understanding of this from looking at history is that the council was usually made up of 70 men. And you go in and there's, there's sort of the, the, all these chairs and maybe they're elevated or, or they have some incline to them. And all these guys are sitting around and they're listening to a case and then they make a judgment. So that's where Paul's going now. And as we start the chapter, that's where Paul's at. He's in the midst of this council where all these men are about to listen to the accusations made against him and listen to Paul, and they're going to render a judgment based on these accusations. So verse 1, Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. So they bring him in before the council, and that, that word looking earnestly means looking intently. So I don't know if he is just looking around the room or if he's staring intently at them, whatever the case, something upset them about this statement. And so we are going to take a moment to talk about this statement. Because this is a very important thing that shows us who Paul is. Paul tells them, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Well, they knew who Paul was, and they thought a lot of things about Paul's. And some, uh, some of the people in this room are Pharisees, and are viewing him as a traitor because he used to be a Pharisee, and now... They look at him as betraying the law, betraying Moses, and now he's gone about this way that he often calls it in the book of Acts. And so Paul tells them, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. How could he say that? I mean, we know the things he did. How could Paul say, I've lived in all good conscience? Because he felt compelled to do what he did. And Paul explains this later. He says, indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul was not in his mind and in his conscience rebelling against God. He was doing these things thinking he was following the will of God. And he said, I thought I had to do these things contrary to the name of Jesus. He said, this I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And he did all of this with a good, clear conscience. When he did all these things, he did that thinking, I am doing God's service. And so when he makes that statement, I've lived in, in all good conscience before God until this day, that's even these things. Now, is he saying, now looking back, that I have a good conscience about all this? No. 
No, that's not what he's saying. Paul is just saying, I've, I've sought to follow God in my life, for all my life. He was a man of integrity, a man of faithfulness. And even though he was confused, he was trying to do these things for God. Notice what he told Timothy. He said, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, which means an arrogant, injurious man. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul said, I didn't know. I didn't believe in Jesus. I didn't believe he was the son of God. I, I didn't do these things out of rebellion to God. But he said, God, I thank God because he judged me faithful. Not he judged me as righteous, but he judged me as faithful. He saw the potential in Paul. And because of the grace of God, Paul looks at all this and he doesn't say, and since I did all that in good conscience, therefore my hands are clean. That's not what he said. He said, I'm the chief of sinners. I understand Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm chief. All these things were wrong. But Paul, that was the kind of life that Paul lived. He sought to serve God in his life according to his faith. And something about that statement made the high priest angry. And so the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by to strike him on the mouth. And you know what that was to do? To shut him up. They did not want to hear it. They did not want to hear that. And Paul says this, and this is extremely strong language to say in the midst of a council. Paul says to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You whitewashed wall. That, I've, I've been called a lot of things. I, I haven't, we don't really say that. What does he mean by you whitewashed wall? He's calling him a hypocrite. That's what he's telling him. He's saying you're a dirty wall that somebody went and washed. Just like Jesus said, you're like whited sepulchers that are inside full of dead men's bones to the Pharisees. He's telling him you're a hypocrite. Why is he telling me he's a hypocrite? He says, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? He said, you're going to sit here and act like you have the moral authority to judge me according to the law when you yourselves are breaking it by telling him to smack me? Now, that's strong language, but I'll tell you, he's really just, he's being fair. Maybe not the whitewashed wall part, but... But the other part, he's just saying that in the spirit of fairness. Because Paul was a man of integrity. But those present said, are you insulting God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brothers, that he is a high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So there's a lot of theories about this. Was Paul saying this out of irony? Was he being sarcastic? Like saying, well, I didn't know he was a high priest. Or was he actually saying, I really wasn't aware that's who he was? And, and I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. What I do know is this. Paul quotes the law to them. That that's, that's not according to the law for someone to speak evil of a ruler of the people. So I, I, would, I would gravitate toward Paul really didn't know he was the high priest. Because he hadn't, it's not like he'd lived there. He hadn't been there in a long time. And so he didn't recognize that. But, but also, if you think about this, he's been accused of saying, don't keep the law of Moses. And what's he do? Well, if I'd have known that, I'd have kept the law. Well, so he's, he's kind of saying, guys, I'm not, I'm not rebelling against the law here. I know the law. But then, all of a sudden, everything detours. And th- this is crazy. Paul, Paul is such a wise person. He's obviously a, a very discerning person with a high level of intellect because he sees an opportunity here to kind of stir up the judges against one another. So when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. 
So he looks out, he looks into the crowd, and he starts noticing, okay, there's Sadducees over there, there's Pharisees over here, and he knows what the Sadducees believe. So he just sort of hedges his bet, I guess you might say. He throws himself in the camp toward the Pharisees, and when he says, I'm a Pharisee, in fact, my dad was a Pharisee, and the reason I'm being persecuted is because I've been teaching about the resurrection of the dead. Now, that may not make a lot of sense, but notice here, and we've, we've talked about this before, about the Sadducees. They're really less of a religious group and more of a political group. They had some religious beliefs, but they're very political. They had some strange ideas. And so when he had said this, a dissension or a division arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Well, what does he say? There's a resurrection, and I'm preaching the resurrection from the dead. Well, they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in an angel or spirit. And a way to remember the Sadducees is they don't believe in eternal life, and that's sad, you see. That's sad, you see. They, they don't believe in eternal life. They just didn't. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. And now what's Paul saying? Well, guess what? Now the Pharisees all of a sudden are joining Paul's side against the Sadducees. Then there arose a loud outcry and the scribes of the Pharisees' party, you notice that word party, arose and protested saying, we find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel, which he just said, the Sadducees believed in neither, and they're affirming it, if a spirit or angel said something to him, let's not fight against God. What is going on here? Well, I'll tell you just a few minutes ago, the accusation against Paul was the the, the focus of this entire council. And now he's been to recognize, hey, this is a bipartisan room. And just as things do, you throw out some political dissension and these guys are now politically divided. And all of a sudden, Paul is being vindicated by the Pharisees because he says, I'm a Pharisee and started this political war. And they were more concerned about being political than they were about the accusations against Paul. They got caught up in the moments. What happened? Well, what happens now? Well, now the Pharisees are saying, we don't find no fault, but you haven't satisfied the Sadducees, so now Paul's put himself at enmity against the Sadducees. So they're going to come and they're going to tear him apart. So there arose a great dissension. The commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. So he was at the barracks. They took him out of the barracks. He goes to the council. They're going to take him back. The barracks is, is where they keep people safe. It's a Roman camp. And it says, but the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Now just thinking back to Acts 21, if you remember when Paul is going to Jerusalem, there are people, including Luke, telling him, no, don't go. Don't go. And Paul said, look, I'm ready to go and I'm ready to be bound and I'm ready to die at Jerusalem. But Jesus says, that's not going to happen. I'm sure up until this point, Paul thought, I'm going to die here. This is, this is the end of me. I mean, but Jesus says, you be of good cheer. Uh, you've testified of me in other places. You've testified of me in Jerusalem, and you're going to testify in Rome. You're not going to die here, Paul. So he knows now, I'm, I'm not going to die in Jerusalem. And that must have emboldened him and comforted him. And so now when it was day, the next day it says, Some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. Now it doesn't tell us if these are those same people in the council. It doesn't say that particularly. But we might look at this as, as, as something noble. When people take a vow or an oath like this and they say, We're not going to eat until we accomplish this. Really this is more of a tantrum is what it is. 
It's emotional manipulation. And this is more akin to a hunger strike than it is religious fasting. They're essentially saying, trying to put political pressure on the rulers by saying, well, we've all decided we're not going to eat until we kill Paul. And they're going to use this to try to manipulate the situation where they can get Paul exposed and kill him. And so they form this conspiracy to kill Paul, 40 men, and they come to the chief priests and the elders, and they say to them, we've bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you therefore, together with the council, suggested the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So you think about this, they say, we're going to kill Paul and we want you to help us. And so you just tell the commander to bring him back, just like he was today, you, or yesterday. You bring him back down here, and you just pretend you're wanting to, but he won't make it. He's not going to make it there. We will kill him before he gets to the council. That's their plan. They, they're going to kill Paul before he gets back to the council. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now, this tells us something about Paul and him being incarcerated. Because of him being a Roman citizen, he had certain privileges that other prisoners would not. His, his nephew is able to just go in there and visit with him. And you're going to see this later in the book of Acts, that they, they allowed Paul to have visitors. They allowed them to take care of him, to bring him things because of his Roman citizenship. So that was, a, that was kind of a, it wasn't a get-out-of-jail-free card, but it was a first-class ticket in jail, if you will, to be a Roman citizen. He had certain privileges. So Paul calls one of the centurions after his nephew tells him this, and he says, take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Now, understand this, this nephew of Paul's has put himself in a, in a dangerous situation as well. But, but he's concerned about his uncle. And this, this kind of makes you think about when, uh, when Moses' mother puts him out on the 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 ark and floats him down the river and Moses' sister kind of is a fly on the wall and just waits for the opportunity to kind of jump in and intervene so that Moses is not killed. That's exactly what this nephew is doing. He's within earshot when all this is conspiring is happening and he's just doing what he can to make sure that his uncle's life is saved. And so so he takes this young man, this captain or this uh, centurion, if you will, takes this young man to the commander. And, the, and then he tells him, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked, uh, called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, "What is it that you have to tell me?" And so he didn't just he didn't allow him to tell him whatever this is out in public. Again, this man, he's he's he, he's very intelligent. He is a commander. He knows how things work. Whatever this information is, it's obviously clandestine. Otherwise, Paul probably just would have told the centurion and, the, and told the centurion to go tell him. But this is sort of a secret message. So this young man goes and he says, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for the promise from you. Now that, that phrase sounds strange, waiting for the promise from you. In other words, what they're, they're waiting to hear your confirmation that you're going to bring him. That's what it means. They're waiting to hear back from you whether or not you're going to bring him. So that's what they're doing. 
So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you've revealed these things to me. So, so you think about this situation. He goes to the commander and he says, don't take Paul down there. They're going to kill him. And he says, don't you tell anybody that you told me this. Don't tell anybody. Because he's already thinking about what he's going to do, this commander. And so he's not going to let anything happen to Paul. Number one, he's a Roman citizen. He's under his protection. He's not going to let it'll be It'll be him on the... Uh, It'll be his head on the line if something happens to Paul. So he's going to make sure that Paul is taken care of. And he called for two centurions saying, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the government. That sort of sounds like overkill, doesn't it? 470 people to take Paul and make sure that he's safe. He is not going to leave it up to chance. Now, 40 people may not sound like a lot, but a lot of things can happen when 40 people are, are that bent on killing a person. I mean, they want to kill him so badly, they've taken an oath not to eat. These people are insane. They, they want him dead. And so he's just, he's just making sure there's not anything going to happen to Paul here. And so he gets nearly 500 men... Uh, and they're going to provide mounts to set Paul on. They're going to keep him safe, and they're going to take him to Felix the government in Caesarea. And we'll talk about Caesarea in just a moment. So before he sends them, the commander's not going to go with them. He's not going to go yet. And so he's going to send Paul with all these soldiers and with these centurions. And so he writes a letter. And this section of Acts 23 uh, is a record of the letter that he wrote and sent uh, to Felix the governor there in Caesarea. And so here's the letter. And this is the name of the commander, Claudius Lysias. And his name is mentioned later again. That's the commander that Paul's been dealing with. And he starts his letter, like most Roman letters would, to a, to a man of nobility. To the most excellent governor, Felix. Greetings. And that, that may sound like he is, he is really flowering it up. You know, really pandering to him. Well, Paul says the same thing, most excellent Felix. So it was just typical of people in those days to be very respectful of their authorities, whether they deserved it or not. It was just a, a respect thing. So to the most excellent Governor Felix, greetings. This man, this Paul, this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before the council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. So here's what the commander's not doing. The commander is not say, get, let, letting Paul get out of this trial that's supposed to happen. It hasn't occurred yet. And they still want to get to the bottom of this situation and find out what Paul's been accused of. But up to this point, he's recognized they're accusing him according to the law, and I, I haven't found anything where he's deserving of chains or death. And so that's why I'm sending him into you. And I've also encouraged or really commanded those people to, that accused him to come where you're at, and they can state their case before you, and you can judge that case. Farewell. And so that's essentially what's happening. He's just moving this trial, moving this council to another location where it is safer for Paul. Nobody's going to come in where Felix is and try to kill Paul. It's a very safe place for him to be. And so that's why uh, Lysias has sent him to Caesarea. Now, the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antip Antipatris. I, I don't know exactly how to say that. 
the next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. So uh, this ought to make Justin a little bit happy. We're going to bring up a map. Um, so this is really the only movement that we have in this chapter. Now, uh, they're going to Caesarea. There's a couple of Caesareas in the area. There's Caesarea here and Caesarea here. This is Caesarea Philippi. And if you remember from Brother John's lesson a while back when he was talking about Matthew 16, they came to Caesarea Philippi, and that's a different place than Caesarea. Caesarea Philippi was occupied mostly by pagans and heathens, whereas Caesarea, if you notice, it's still around the area uh, close to Samaria, just a little bit south of Galilee, and I don't, that's not all marked off here, but it's somewhere around this area right here, Samaria. So Caesarea is still occupied by a lot of Jewish people, and this is where they're headed. It's about 75 miles from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and they first go to Antipatris, which is right here, about halfway and if you notice from the text, what happens is they had these foot soldiers that were following along. So there was 470, these 200 foot soldiers, they go all the way to Antipatris, and then they turn around, they go back. They go back to the barracks at Jerusalem. So they, they, they accompany them all the way, halfway, and then they decide, okay, it's safe for the other 270 just to go on without them. And then they end up here in Caesarea. And this is where Felix lives, and several chapters here... Um, Paul is going to be there in Caesarea with Felix and then with Festus and then, and then Agrippa comes and he's in Caesarea for quite a time and so that's where he's going to end up being for a while. So as we end the chapter tonight, um, it says when the governor had read it, read the letter, he asked what province he was from and when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come and he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium and that that Herod's Praetorium was essentially a palace that Herod had built. And it was customary for there to be a jail and things right there in close proximity uh, because those palaces were also a center of judgment where they would judge certain cases. So again, the governor re reads the letter and then he wants to know where Paul's from. Probably testing him about his Roman citizenship and he's from Cilicia, which is where Tarsus is. And so... Again, he says, okay, well, I'm going to wait till your accusers come. Now, we're not going to get into chapter 24, but this sounds like there's a long period of time that's passed. But what we're going to find out is not even 12 days have passed since Paul arrived at Jerusalem until the accusers get there. So this all happens pretty quickly. Um, it, it's not really drug out. So that's the chapter tonight. It really felt kind of open-ended, to be honest. Uh, but that's how these last few chapters are going to be. We're going to get a little bit of the story, and then we're going to have to kind of wait, maybe be on a cliffhanger and find out what happens next. Um, so tonight we want to offer the invitation of Jesus Christ as we always customarily do at the end of a service. Uh, if you're here tonight and you want to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, we encourage you to do that. Uh, if you would like the prayers of the church for any reason at all, for strength, for comfort, or for forgiveness, we also ask that you come and have a seat and let us help you as we stand and we sing the song that's been selected. <laughs>